Hey crew, it's your Captain Caliban speaking. I wanted to take a minute before we get started this year to say welcome back to the show. Enterprising Individuals is back for our third year, and we've got an all-new batch of great shows and great guests for this season. Every other Wednesday, I and a guest will be looking at a selected episode of a Star Trek series from TOS all the way to Enterprise. And every other, other Wednesday, I'll be back to bring you the news from the world of Trek, plus interviews with people in the world of Trek literature, Trek actors and writers, and more for our supplemental shows. Also, on each supplemental show, we'll have a special segment that takes an extra deep dive into an aspect or element of the episode that we covered on the previous week. So, look out for that. It's all very exciting, and I'm really looking forward to sharing with you the great interviews and guests and insights we've got on some great episodes of Star Trek this year, so stay tuned. And while you're tuned in, take a moment, if you would, to give us a rating and a review on your listening platform of choice, because that really helps us out. Also, you, that's right, you can be a part of the crew of the USS Enterprising individuals by joining the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. You can weigh in on our latest episode or get notified when the newest episode drops by following us on Twitter at at EISTpod and at the same place on Facebook. Use the hashtag EISTpod when you're tweeting about the show or the hashtag Discoverage if you're tweeting about Star Trek Discovery. And speaking of Discovery, the first season of Discovery is over, but our Star Trek Discoverage live recap shows are still available in our show feed. You can hear me and my my co-host Ella Pearson of the Generations Geek podcast talk with a new guest each week about the latest episode of Discovery taped immediately after the episode airs on CBS All Access. They're fresh and piping hot, at least they were then, so go check those out. And if you really want to be a part of the mission of enterprising individuals, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. We have many tiers or ranks at which you can join and become a member of the crew and get access to content like our live shows and my DS9 rewatch reviews, where I go all the way through the seven seasons of Deep Space Nine and give my impressions of each episode, which now that I've made it out of the first season, is becoming more and more of a treat for me, and it can be a treat for you as well. So check us out at patreon.com forward slash EISDpod questions, comments, marriage proposals, you can contact the show at EISTPOD at gmail.com. We're waiting to receive your transmission. Enjoy the show and let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and wearing a silver lame spacesuit is perfectly acceptable, but not after Labor Day. I'm joined on this episode by Gordon Purcell. Gordon is a comics artist who has worked for nearly 30 years in the industry on properties like the Fantastic Four, Superman, Justice League, and Moon Knight. He's also drawn Star Trek comics for nearly as long, having worked on series featuring the original crew, the Next Generation crew, DS9, and Voyager. Gordon, welcome to the show. And also Captain Pike's crew, which is an odd one. Of course, that's correct. This is before the wheelchair years. 
yes. I drew, <laughs> so I drew uh, that group, as, but I couldn't do their likenesses. I could only uh, draw what I remembered. But basically, they looked like the real crew. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, permission to come aboard granted. Today, we'll be talking about the Tholian Web, the ninth episode of the third season of Star Trek, the original series. The third season of Star Trek is generally held to be inferior to its first two due to a number of factors like the reduced budgets, studio pressure, and a brain drain of creative talent on the show's writing staff. Over the years, much of the criticism of the show's third season and its subsequent cancellation has landed at the feet, at the feet I should say, of Fred Freiberger, the producer brought in to replace John Meredith Lucas, who himself was tapped to replace departing producer Gene Kuhn during the show's second season. But the truth, in television production, as in real life, is never quite that simple. And we'll get to that a little later in the show. But first, Gordon, what's your backstory? How did you come to Star Trek, become a Star Trek fan? Well, it was in syndication uh, when uh, I was coming home from school in, you know, in grade school and high school. <laughs> and so um, uh, this is one of the shows I would watch. I also watched Lost in Space and then I think when I was younger, Gilligan's Island. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Probably Flintstones, I'm sure. But uh, this really caught me. And uh, when I was most interested in... in uh, more about television, more than just being light entertainment. And I remember uh, in high school, there was a, um, uh, I can't remember, the Easy Readers or something. There were some <laughs> scholastic books, I right. think it was. Yeah. They actually had some sort of play of one of the Star Trek episodes. Oh, really? The one from um, when they go back to Earth uh, and because uh, the pilot has taken their picture. Oh, yes, yes. And that actually was a screenplay that they did, and uh, and we did it in class. It wasn't with costumes or anything. I think I played Scotty. Okay. But I was, but uh, I even got, that's probably the first time I even saw a TV kind of script. Okay. So uh, it's always been one of the shows that's most in my mind when it comes uh, to making TV and stuff. I also bought that Making of Star Trek book, which is a very wonderful book, especially at that time, that really goes into a lot of detail about making TV shows. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of, some of my interest is I was interested in making TV shows or how they do that. You know, it's so remote to me. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, and just the whole thing about Hollywood was so remote. Yeah, yeah, it seems like another world, yeah. Well, and it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> another planet. It's so weird that that particular episode would be a script because there's all kinds of special effects and there's, you know, exterior shots of jets, you know, following the Enterprise. And you'd think that a script like a third season script would be a good script for uh, for kids to do because there's, you know, very there's fewer special effects. Like a Let That Be Your Last Battlefield would be a good little talky script for a bunch of kids to do. I, I cannot tell you why they did it. I don't really remember. <laughs> I know uh, my friend Tom found the script. Okay. Uh, and, uh, so I believe he played Kirk, <laughs> uh, but I don't remember any other details, sure. except I, I'm pretty sure he played Scotty. It's possible I was McCoy, but I think I was Scotty. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you didn't say, uh, that anybody was dead, I guess you'd know that you weren't, uh, playing McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, uh, Scotty beams up people accidentally or whatever. Right. So, yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> the, so uh, that was my the main night watchman. memory. Yeah. Yes. And me trying to do a really bad Scottish accent. <laughs> this is a time, too, where you mentioned shows like Gilligan's Island, like where things were kind of, uh, if something was on, 
it was just you know three or four channels, so everybody had seen it. Like we've all seen the majority of Gilligan's Island episodes, even though we wouldn't consider ourselves big island heads or whatever fans of no. Gilligan's Island call themselves. Whereas today, there's so many shows that unless something is you know really stands out from the pack, and you have a great recommendation from a friend, it's a crapshoot whether you've seen what somebody else has seen. Yeah, that's very true. There's a lot of shows from the '80s, for example, like Different Strokes and you know Facts of Life. I've never seen those shows at all. I was in college. I just, it just, I didn't really watch that much TV in college. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm familiar with things like the Munsters and Adams Family, which they showed side by side, even though they're probably competitors. And oh, yeah, absolutely. The Star Trek <laughs> and and, and uh, Lost in Space to a little lesser extent. Lost in Space, I, I love the first season, and then after that, it's a crapshoot. <laughs> yeah, it starts to go down too. Um, I'm interested in as well as uh, how you got into comics. I do have uh, degrees in both theater and uh, studio arts from the University of Minnesota. And uh, I, we, I mentioned this to you, but I always found the theater one help more because there's a lot about staging and interpreting scripts and having sets, you know, kind of come up with costumes and sets and casting, lighting, a lot of that stuff is stuff you learn in theater, actually. Uh, the main thing that the art helped was uh, just life drawing and things like that so anyway i have those degrees and uh at the end of that uh graduation year uh they had a convention and so i um decided to go to that and before that my year before i graduated i went to new york and drew on my own with wrong dimensions and all a page of dc art justice league and a page of some sort of marvel art and marvel uh, wouldn't even let you they, you dropped off the art, and I just came and picked it up the next day. Nobody had anything to say. <laughs> no. But DC, uh, one of the editors, Ernie Cologne, brought me in and talked to me for quite a long time. Uh, it was very kind of him, and uh, he had a lot of uh, instructions. So I got into some sort of new talent program, but then he left as an editor, and you know, it's one of those kind of things. So uh, when I went to the convention here, I uh, uh, brought the art that I had brought done there. Uh, one of the artists, Greg Guler, needed some help doing layouts on a book that he's behind on. So I did that, and uh, and that was my first job. It was Captain Paragon, I think it was called. Yeah. Sentinels of Justice. And from there, I would get little tiny jobs. You know, uh, I did some work at City Pages. I did uh, Munden's Bar for first. I did little, just little jobs until... DC had a real new talent program, and Marvel did too. And Marvel's was to draw a Spider-Man story, some pages of that, and I was a runner-up to Mark Bagley, who actually won the contest. <laughs> right, sure, yeah. And uh, at DC, uh, what it evolved to, they had several of these new programs, and I keep getting put into them and not, and then just passed on. Uh, but by that point, they had FedEx, and so it wasn't so hard. So they assigned me something called a bonus book, which was a, uh, a free book for the customer, where it was like a shorter story, like maybe an 18-page story or something like that, that they just put as an addition in the middle of a book. Mine was Flash. Okay. And uh, it was a Dr. Light story. And uh, that was my first job. They liked how I drew the faces. It was a kind of a funny story with a 
bunch of kids taking down a villain, <laughs> uh, which became part of the continuity because the character became much crueler and stuff because he's so embarrassed by this. Um, and I think the next job I did was a Spectre job, and then I got Star Trek, or maybe a Teen Titans first and a Flash. But there was, Star Trek was in there somewhere. Sure. And so I did a couple of the last issues of the first run from DC that Ricardo Villagran uh, inked. And uh, then when uh, they lost the license for, I don't know, it seems like a month, <laughs> not very long. Uh, they came back with the license that had Next Generation too, And so I, get, I think I drew a couple of Next Generation things, including an annual that I did with John Delancey, the actor who played Q, who acted out every story. He would call me up and act out everything. <laughs> well, again, that's point, a theater background. He's an actor. Yeah, yes. And uh, uh, he didn't uh, get along very well with DC, so he did everything through me, <laughs> which is strange because I really didn't have all that much experience. But here I was, you know, basically writing, helping write the story, uh, or at least doing um, breaking it down because he only understood film scripts. So I had to break it down to a comic book kind of story. Anyway, I think because I um, wrestled that well enough, they assigned me to the regular Star Trek book with uh, issue 11, and I did that, and I've done it off and on. My last issue was a Waypoint story for uh, IDW. So, Well, the Star Trek license has definitely jumped around between a lot of companies, and you yourself have worked for many different brands in your uh, career. What, what is it about the freelancer experience that not being connected to one particular label that's superior in your mind? It kind of depends on um, what stage you are in your career and things like that, but uh, a lot of people like the freedom. I, uh, uh, at one point, wanted to not just draw licensed books. I wanted to draw superhero books. I ended up working for Marvel for about four years, just doing superhero books and such. Um, because, you know, you just want some variety in what you're doing. And of course, when you get into comics, it's most kids, uh, I read superhero books. There weren't a lot of other kind of books when I was growing up. It's not like now, <laughs> oh, yeah. where there's quite a huge variety of uh, genres out there. Uh, and uh, uh, I would say at DC is a little bit labeled as doing as a, the Star Trek guy. So um, so it was good to go to Marvel and do that. And then I ended up doing Malibu's version of Deep Space Nine, which is, I believe, still is the highest selling uh, Star Trek comic of all time. And um, then I moved on to do it for DC because uh, they had a new editor who was a very good woman named Margaret Clark. And I had a really great time until, once again, Marvel saw an opportunity to, and told uh, the people from Paramount that uh, they're the number one company and they should be <laughs> publishing Marvel comics. Right. comics. <laughs> and so they did that. And that, again, at Marvel, uh, they didn't think of me. They don't want to have the same people drawing that do at DC. So. so I did go for a while without drawing Star Trek. So once I got to do it again at, uh, I think, Wildstorm and IDW, I enjoyed it a lot more. I came back to it with a really good uh, love. I mean, one of the things is I, I knew I could do it. I had ideas about how to make my art better. And so uh, I was very enthusiastic about it, and I, I still am. Well, that's great. 
Sure. Why'd you select the Tholian web to talk about on the show today? I think it's one of the best of the bottle shows. Uh, I'm sure you can define the bottle show, but they basically shot just on the uh, enterprise sets that are already built, and it's a way to save some money right. outside of the special effects. Um, I will say that the version that you can find on Netflix with the redone special effects is an improved version in my mind because the Tholian web itself, the Tholian ships look so much better. Yeah. And the web effect is a little bit more effective. Um, uh, I do feel, I feel that it has a lot of emotional heft to it where some of the other ones don't. And, uh, they do have to go through things quickly, but I, um, so it could have been more, but it's really a strong one since the bulk of it is about uh, Bones and Spock dealing with uh, Kirk being gone and and the new dynamic that would add to their relationship. In the meantime, of course, they're going, uh, there's a, <laughs> uh, what would you call it, space oddity that's kind of space madness with their brains. Yes. <laughs> and so... Um, which seems to obviously not affect Spock so much, but uh, does affect McCoy. And it's, there's a lot of interesting things in this episode. They, uh, when the crew members go mad, they have a fisheye lens often, which is an interesting effect for that time period. There's just interesting acting all the three, because uh, McCoy is kind of a little bit all over the place, which I <laughs> guess they would probably call the space madness, where right. Spock has to be kind of rock. But on the other hand, Spock makes the more emotional choice in some ways of yeah. trying to be there to get to get Kirk to save Kirk, where McCoy is uh, actually taking the more Spock-like argument that logically we got to get out of here before we all get crazy. Yeah, it also has the entire regular cast, including Chapel, which is nice. Yeah, as many as the third season episodes did. Yeah, it also has. Um, uh, Chekhov going crazy. <laughs> yeah, and some great Chekhov screams in this one, too. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it has a little bit of humor from Scotty and is uh, drinking the uh, solution. <laughs> yes. And the ending is quite charming, I think, where Kirk uh, talks to uh, talks to them a little bit about uh, yes. what did they go through the, his, his tapes and they for some reason, they choose to uh, keep him in the dark. Right. <laughs> it's interesting to see how far Spock will go with the lie. Yeah. One of one of my favorite scenes is they listen is the tape scene where uh, Kirk gives his final instructions to, and uh, well founded uh, advice. But the sh- shot they dwell on a lot is just a two shot of uh, Spock and McCoy, and Spock is very stoic, and McCoy goes through a lot of. <laughs> different emotions in the in, shot. In, yes, in the great DeForest Kelly way, yeah. Yes, and uh, he also apologizes twice, which is nice to see to Spock, that he actually uh, can see where he's been going wrong. A lot of the thing that doesn't scan 100% is he's always talking about, oh, that Spock wants to get his own command. Which right. never seems to be the truth. And I believe there are other episodes where he does this. And I just never have, I never see that in his character. 
I think he's like Riker. He just doesn't seem to ever really have that ambition. <laughs> I think that he knows that he does very well in the position that he's in, and yeah, he wouldn't shy from command if Kirk was incapacitated. But they, he's got that great line where McCoy is sort of twisting the knife on that issue, and like, you know, Spock, you've done all this, and if you get us out of here, then you're captain and you're in command. And Spock's like, I'm already in command. <laughs> Like, yeah, I, I'm not trying to manipulate the situation. Like, you, I have what you what you say that I want. So, what what do I want here? Yeah, what's the lo- what's the logic to this? And it's like, uh, I think McCoy sometimes thinks of him as just like what any other up and coming officer would be, but he doesn't see the he doesn't always appreciate the difference that Spock is as a half Vulcan and all that. Yeah. But I also sometimes wonder if it's not just a weakness in a writing. That is entirely possible. Yeah, there's two writers. One was a woman, which I which I always thought was one of the problems they sometimes had was that they, uh, uh, like DC Fontana used the initial DC because uh, the networks didn't really like women writers or something like this on these shows. Yeah, I think that it was um, sort of uncommon back then. We'll get to that after we do our technical details. I wanted to say that this is, of course, the Tholian Web we're talking about, the ninth episode of the third season. It first aired on November 15th of 1968. As you mentioned, it was written by a woman, Judy Burns, and also Chet Richards. Judy Burns is a TV writer and a producer who has uh, credits on other shows like Magnum P.I., Mission Impossible, Knight Rider, and T.J. Hooker. And she wrote the Star Trek Continues episode, Still Treads the Shadow, which is a continuation of the Tholian web. And she's still writing today. She's had a long, successful career. But this was her first TV script, and it was, as far as I can tell, unsolicited. And as far as the other writer, Chet Richards, I don't know. This is his only credit. <laughs> Memory Alpha has him listed in one place as Burns's husband and on another page uh, as her friend. And I couldn't find any other info online. But mm-hmm. if they were some kind of team, you think they would have done more. Or maybe he was just giving her some ideas as a husband, and then she's like, no, no, I got this from now on. So I'm not sure which one is more likely. Or maybe they divorced. <laughs> or maybe they just split up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was. Yeah, it, so. uh, they were both interviewed for Mark Cushman's uh, These Are the Voyages uh, book, and uh, again, no mention there of their relationship. So anyway, I think Judy Burns' career speaks for itself. Uh, the episode was directed by Herb Wallerstein, but thereby hangs a tale because Ralph Sineski was originally hired to direct the episode, and he was fired uh, near the end of the episode's production by Fred Freiberger for going over budget. Nearly all of the remaining footage in the episode was shot by Sineski. Uh, Sineski was considered the third rotating director for the series. He was always filling in when Joe Pevney and Mark Daniels were unavailable, and he directed a total of seven episodes for the show, or six and a half maybe, uh, considering this one. Um, He's actually the guy who, uh, you mentioned the fisheye lens effect before. That was his idea. He used it in Is There in Truth No Beauty as well. Right, and that's where I remembered it being more more distinctive. <laughs> yeah. As for Wallerstein, he directed four episodes of the third season, and he went on to direct uh, for other TV shows, such as I Dream of Jeannie, uh, The Brady Bunch, and Wonder Woman. Here's a funny and sad story uh, in equal measure. He was actually killed by his housekeeper in 1985, a woman named Mayor Melendez Lopez, who claimed that she was acting in self-defense and she was found not guilty on manslaughter charges. So his career was cut short as well as his life was at that point. Oh, that's odd. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really very strange. And the start date for this episode is 5693.2. So, Gordon, your assignment, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of the Tholian web. Since I don't have the technical words, I would just say that... Uh... 
the crew comes across the Defiant, which is in a part of space that is, well, now I've probably gone over 25. <laughs> <laughs> Not there yet. <laughs> Kirk disappears. Uh, Spock and McCoy have to recover him before the Tholians destroy the ship. Maybe that's close enough. And 25. space madness. <laughs> right. Space madness. <laughs> uh, I think that's perfect. Uh, here's some interesting facts about this episode from the Memory Banks. I think that this episode might be the first depiction of a video will. Uh, this was pointed out in a paper by Jerry W. Beyer uh, of the Texas Tech University School of Law. Referring, of course, yeah, to Kirk's pre-recorded message uh, in the event of his death, his message to Spock and McCoy. There's one other thing that I think is uh, that I never, I never really see a lot, but uh, McCoy often is wearing a uh, a pouch, a medical pouch throughout, yeah. where he doesn't always use grab, grab things from it, but it's like a holster. Right. Can recall like his old cowboy days. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but I don't. He doesn't seem to have that pouch. A lot of other scenes that I've seen on off other episodes, which seems odd. It seems like it's reasonable for him to have it. Yeah, and this is one where he spends a lot of time, you know, working on a cure. Although he also spends a lot of time running up to the bridge and yelling at Spock when he probably should just be working on the cure. Well, also there, if you're going to say where things are budget-wise cheap, they have these giant. It looks like bottles from a hair salon yes. filled with colored water. Yeah. And this is, well, this is the, uh, what is it called, Theragun derivatives or whatever. We'll try this out. It's like, well, first of all, there's a lot of it in there. <laughs> and second, they, these, they, they, they just don't look modern. <laughs> they look old. It, it, you know, it was one thing where sometimes they used like salt shakers and stuff as medical instruments. This one looks really cheap. Just flasks, right, yeah. We, yeah, well, you know, it'd look better if they were in beakers or something like yeah. that. <laughs> Them being in these plastic uh, bottles are just goofy. Why not milk bottles at that point? <laughs> sure, just pours it out of a milk carton. There you go. Well, I, you know, I'm going to use this as a, let's experiment on this. What is it, blood? Is it Theragun? I, they don't really explain it. Why do you have so much Theragun? Yeah, I think you know. it looks a little like Tang. Oh, yeah, it, that really does look like Tang. Uh, and again, that's a pretty good scene, actually. But I, the idea that they're all getting drunk on the bridge, uh, it's kind of funny. Right. Well, they had a couple other ones where they're all laughing at the end. Well, it was, it's kind of the Mad Men solution to, uh, to office problems. You know, we'll all just, uh, we'll just get drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that is the end. You know, that's the way it should go. But the part that caught me as a kid, again, is these are characters I knew. This is actually more of a character episode, I would say, that you learn a little bit about some of the other characters, not just Kirk all the time. Right, and it's, and, a, show that uh, has, it's a show that has no guest stars. Nope, unless you, the voice of the, <laughs> the uh Oh, the Philian, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is probably Scotty. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right. Um, but... Uh, and Kirk is barely in it. There aren't that many episodes where Kirk is in kind of the dead center of the show. Yeah. And so that's interesting. And again, it's it's just, I I think at the time it really caught me because it just um, went into their characters. And as a kid, I wouldn't have thought of that. 
Uh-huh. But it showed that you could do something deeper. You know, they didn't do that so much in, say, I didn't know what Dr. Smith was all about or Gilligan. This is something <laughs> where you're kind of learning a little bit more about them and that they have some sort of history, like uh, you saw Kirk's medals and stuff like that. Right, uh, yeah. That kind of stuff was always really interesting to me. They're, the one where they go to the planet and... Um, uh, and the flower shoot at Spock. And that's another one where you kind of see that Kirk had a, a, a past and he looks at his medals and stuff like that. Sure. And that Spock had a past. Uh, you know, those are the kind of episodes I ended up liking more in a lot of ways. Yeah. And especially coming from such a young writer as well. It, it's, it's really uh, stands out. Um, the concept, speaking of the writer, the concept for the episode came uh, from an idea that Judy Burns had about spirits, uh, floating around the Enterprise. But of course, Roddenberry's Bible for the series specified that all the elements had to be science-based. So she was going to have to find a new way to do her ghost story. And Burns, who, and I can't confirm this, but she would have been 21 or 22 at the time, which again is crazy, but I'm assuming she was a college or a grad school student. She got the idea from a fellow student that was studying physics about the theory of alternate dimensions uh, and other realities. And she decided to use that to bring her ghost story to life. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the... That part of the story makes sense. There are things that don't make sense. The Tholian web itself, although, again, it's enhanced a lot by the uh, the current version that's out. Right. Um, I I don't know exactly how that operates. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently, they just sit there still while they web do this web around them. It seems like they could have gotten around this any time. And then when they actually get thrown free from the Tholian web... I still don't really understand how they did that. Right. Well, this is, it's funny because this um, uh, is a, um, so there's a a pair of Enterprise episodes called um, In a Mirror Darkly, which uh, deal with the mirror universe. And they're sort of, they were conceived as a prequel to Mirror Mirror, the TOS episode, and a sequel to this episode. And it features the mirror universe Archer uh, encountering the Defiant, which has been thrown out of the normal reality into another reality, the mirror universe. And so it sort of connect. We see the Tholians again, and it's sort of a follow-up to this. Yeah, I, I saw the Enterprises. I, I have not seen them a second time for the most part, so I don't remember the show quite as well. Sure. The other ones, I, I saw probably every one of them at least twice. Yeah. Uh, this episode features the first appearance of a starship named the Defiant, uh, although the ship's name in the original draft of the script was the Scimitar. Uh, this is the first appearance of our aforementioned Silver LeMay spacesuits, which, although they are very unique in appearance, I think they are a far step above the shower curtain suits from the episode The Naked Time. Um, in the original yes. in the original draft of the script, the screw uh, the crew was actually uh, going to wear life support shields similar to the life support belts that they would use in the in the animated series. Okay, which I'm not sure was probably a budget thing. It was probably just wear these belts, and then we'll do one you know superimposed uh, effect where something bumps into you, and we see that it's a suit or or an. Uh, yeah, thing. I assume that's actually the animation that they didn't want to re put all the characters into a different suit. It's probably just cheaper. The script is heavy on special effects as it was. Uh, special effects artist Mike Miner said in an interview that it took three to four months to complete the uh, effects for the show, which is a lot, and they cost uh, $90,000, which is also a lot. But the show was nominated for an Emmy Award for its special effects. The spacesuits were designed by show costumer Bill uh, Thies, of course, 
And they were made to Roddenberry's edict that the future had no zippers or fasteners, which meant that the cast had to be sewed into them before every take. And every time they went to the bathroom, of course, they had to (laughs) cut them out and then sew them back in. And that's one of the reasons that the show ended up a day behind. And that's one of the reasons that Sineski was fired. So it's all, you know, a stack of dominoes. Yeah, so so because of the costumes and the special effects, it ran over budget. Yeah, that's and right. They took it out on the director. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something that we can definitely talk about. Um, it's one of the things I, I want to talk about uh, chiefly on this episode, the idea that a guy like Ralph Sineski, who had served the show for so long, was just fell victim to this edict uh, and the pressures that were on the show during the third season. The suit's helmets featured a wire mesh covering the actors' faces, which was employed to allow the cast to breathe. They used that instead of perspex or glass or something however i noticed um, as you probably did on netflix now that the show's been remastered you can easily see the mesh it looks like a screen door that's over their face yeah it's not quite the cool space bubble that you'd get normally well actually the bottom part of the suit looks great the helmet is the part that looks a little bit right and then they've got the little uh, brother labeler uh (laughs) sign with their name that's stuck to the front well in some ways the uh the rest of the suit looks pretty much kind of like NASA suits, just kind of a little more colorful. Yeah, I like the color, uh, and I like the asymmetry. I think it's a kind of neat design. I, I admit it's, you know, a little goofy, but, you know, it's Star Trek. Yeah, the helmet is the only thing that doesn't look much like a NASA suit. It looks odd. It looks kind of like a, what was it, the group that was against S.H.I.E.L.D.? <laughs> Hy- not Hydra, oh, AIM. Uh, AIM, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> looks a little like it. Although those uh, orange suits that they had in that other episode really looks like AIM. Yeah, right, the beekeeper. So much, I wonder if one was not ripped off from the other. It's very possible. Now I'm trying to think of who would have uh, came up with uh, the AIM designs. Uh, probably Kirby, right? Kirby, yeah, probably Kirby. Uh, and also, uh, what else here? Um, the first, This is the first appearance in continuity of Uhura's Quarters. Uh, we later, later see them in Alan of Troyes. And the chapel scene in which we see the uh, crew remember Kirk at his memorial service, had about two dozen uh, extras, and it stands as one of the largest crew scenes uh, that we see in the original series. And yet not very effective, because it seems like, well, most of the crew doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the one that does is like, ah! like people showed up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it's kind of a cool scene in a lot of ways, because they talk about it. Um, Spock has to lead it, that... Uh, McCoy feels it's more important for him to be there. And then Scotty, actually, is the guy who kind of dismisses everybody, which I kind of think shows that how uh, how important he is and why he is the kind of the fill-in guy when Spock is... Yeah, he's the de facto Disney. second officer at this point. Yeah, and you could really see it with that because he really does take control of it. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and he gets drunk later. Despite but... the heavy drinking. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, and that uh, set, of course, was used in Balance of Terror as the um, chapel for the wedding ceremony. And I always like on uh, any Star Trek show, but definitely on original series where they keep telling us that we're enlightened and we don't have the exact same traditions. But I do like seeing people get married or I do like seeing a funeral. I like seeing that these are still recognizable human beings who have a lot of the yeah. same traditions. Especially since that time. In the 60s, a lot of that stuff would have been even more important than it is maybe now, uh, you know, having a religious background and, and ceremonies and stuff like that. So it's kind of nice to see them acknowledge that. Yeah. So the third season of Star Trek, or as it's sometimes uh, affectionately or unaffectionately known by fans, the third season, uh, has problems. 
Um, Star Trek had been saved from cancellation by a letter-writing campaign organized by B. Joe and John Trimble. But even so, behind the scenes, production was in turmoil. Uh, Gene Roddenberry had stepped away from the show. He was keeping his executive producer credit, of course, but he was no longer involved in the day-to-day. He did so understandably due to exhaustion, but he was also frustrated with the network, and he was really antagonistic towards them as well. Um, Star Trek was having trouble with its time slot. It had originally been scheduled to return at 8 p.m. on Mondays, which would have been nice. But this is a funny story. Uh, Laugh-In producer George Slatter had his heart set on that spot, and he threatened to take his show to another network unless they got the 8 p.m. Monday slot. Were you a Laugh-In fan? Yeah, I, I was at the time. Sure. <laughs> I haven't seen it in quite a long time. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that's quite dated, but uh, I believe it is a show that we would watch at night. Yeah, so. Also, the uh, Jerry Lewis show was on Tuesday nights, and it was tanking, and they really wanted to move Trek in at a, uh, 8 p.m. on Tuesday, which also would have been nice. But there were like heavy contract stipulations that NBC would have to basically buy them out if they moved them. So they couldn't do right. that. They had to buy out Jerry Lewis. Yeah, right? yeah. So Trek eventually landed at 10 p.m. on Fridays, which is not a good slot for any show. I would say at that time, probably the worst slot in TV. Later on, Saturday would become worse. But at that time, they still had, remember, at one point, they had like All in Family, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, Carol Burnett were all on Saturday. But uh, so Saturday, but Friday was the death slot because people would go out on Fridays. Yeah, now it's Saturday. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. And if you notice, Fridays are often where they'll put something like Shield or uh, <laughs> um, Once Upon a Time because um, they figure that people are going out on Fridays too. Sure, but the nerds are still around, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, well, right, they'll watch it. <laughs> Apparently, country music fans would be around as well because the Grand Old Opry was actually being carried on a lot of uh, affiliates instead of Star Trek. So I'm going to put it up right now. Minnie Pearl killed Star Trek. That's that's who's to blame. I say Jerry Lewis. Yeah, we'll go back to Jerry Lewis. Doctor! Uh, uh, The Green Ladies, uh, the show's budget uh, had also been slashed. Uh, Each episode of the third season now cost about $180,000, which would be about $1.5 million in 2017 money, which is down from around uh, about $195 or $196 in season one. And just by perspective, the three stars of Big Bang each make a million dollars an episode. For every episode they do. Yeah. Uh, did the uh, actors get raises with each year, too, or not? They did, and that was another monetary pressure. But, I mean, it was nothing like, you know, what the uh, Big Bang people were negotiating for, I'm sure. Times are so different now. Yeah. Also, people know that there's a life, a life after television, you know, the, the original run. I think back then, they, I don't think a lot of people really saw that these things would last forever. You know, that they'd be in syndication, especially Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek was a leader in that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think Desilu, isn't that one of the ideas uh, that the Lucy show, or I Love Lucy or whatever, she knew that there'd be reruns, so they would tape it or or film it. Right, right. That was a smart decision. Uh, The show is also experiencing a loss of creative talent. Gene Kuhn, who was a producer and an instrumental writer on the show, had left in its second season, although he would continue to contribute some scripts under a pen name. And as you mentioned, D.C. Fontana, who was the writer and story consultant for the show's first two seasons, would leave the show and be replaced by Arthur H. Singer, who wrote the teleplay for Turnabout Intruder which is seen by many as one of the low points for the series. And I, I, I would disagree with that. Really? I think the concept is the low point. It's a low point. The idea there could be women captains. 
Oh, sure. But I do think it's a kind of a well-acted episode, so I sort of like it. It's so much better to me than some of the ones that are just boring, like, uh, oh, the one with uh, Lazarus. Oh, yeah, Which right. is just dull and poorly shot and poorly put together, and there's <laughs> yeah. no character bits to hang on to, you know. Yeah. Or the one with Landrew is like that, too. Or or Spock's brain, which is I just feel is so ridiculous that it's not worth watching. <laughs> that's where I would pull. It is ridiculous, but that's where I would pull out the concept is better than the script, perhaps because I like the idea of there's this society of advanced women living underground. There's cavemen above ground, and they've got this controller that runs everything. And then uh, I read um, in a interview or just on a website recently that that script was changed a lot from the beginning to its execution and it was originally supposed to be a commentary on what at the time was controversial um, organ transplantation and it had a lot of humor in it as well and again I, I can't even conceive of what that would have been but they took out all the scripts and they took out all the commentary and yeah we're just left with Spock walking around with no brain well because it makes no sense yeah, no, there's absolutely no effect on him. He, he can walk around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it just you know if they had said we just wiped his memories or something like that, I but it, you know that they physically took his brain makes just no sense. It's just one of those things that even with a few hundred years between them, it still couldn't be done. I, I there's just certain things I don't think could be done. Right. This episode was the first episode uh, for Al Francis as the director of photography. He was formerly a cameraman on the series. He replaced Jerry Finnerman, who was the longtime DP on the show, who left uh, after filming the episode The Empath, um, partly because he felt like the series had become, quote, ridiculous, uh, end quote, uh, but mainly due to a dispute with Fred Freiberger, who wanted him to accept a um, wage reduction, and he was not into that. So as Fred, Fr Fred's big thing was basically he just fought the budget and didn't care about anything else. Is that what's going on? That's what it seems to me, having uh, read These Are the Voyages and sort of researched this. I think that money was a huge pressure. And you have to imagine that if you're making a show like this, which is becoming a worse and worse bet, for NBC as it goes on. So they on. brought in a different producer that had no, no background in science fiction? He was a film writer. Um, he had written, uh, he went on to write some TV, uh, and he had also worked um, on a couple's, he worked on Wild Wild West previously, uh, who, where interestingly, he had actually been fired from Wild Wild West for refusing to fire uh, a friend of his who the network wanted gone. And so I think that definitely motivated his decision to just cut out Sineski as soon as he got the uh, the word to do that. Well, you know, I, I guess producers are different. They, you know, they uh, you'd think that if you wrote uh, Wild Wild West, he might uh, be more creative, but maybe not. He over, also oversaw uh, Space 1999. He had presided over The Six Million Dollar Man and Josie and the Pussycats as well. All shows that were either canceled or had um, ramped down their production uh, after he took over for them. So he's kind of oh. he seems like the relief pitcher guy. So this is common that he he would come in late into a show. And it's funny because, you know, Judy Burns has, you know, really good things to say about him. If you look at um, Inside Star Trek, uh, The Real Story by Solo and Justman, uh, they defend him as well. Um, a lot of the blame gets put on Roddenberry, uh, the network for budgetary reasons, but also Roddenberry for basically abandoning the series. It sounds like he was in you know, a peak, you know, he was pouting or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Judy Burns says that he is a, a creative writer and he's a nice guy. 
And he hasn't done many interviews, but he was interviewed, I think, for the TV version, the documentary of Inside Star Trek, uh, where he kind of repeats similar things. I, I, just going back to Al Francis for a second, I wanted to note, uh, mention that I have a theater background as well, and I've done a little film work. I wouldn't consider myself like a real expert at cinematography, but this is one of the first episodes that I was watching, and I thought, oh, that's bad. That like That's a mistake. They shouldn't have done that thing that they just did. Um, there's a, a couple different shots, um, especially through uh, Francis's tenure, where I think there's a shot in um, Mark Gideon where the camera whip pans away to something like we're going to see something that Kirk's looking at, and there's nothing, yeah. and then it just goes right back to Kirk. And it's like, well, why would they leave that in there? Or in the opening of the teaser of this episode, they're on the Bridge of the Defiant, which is, of course, the Enterprise uh, redressed bridge, and they're just kind of standing there. And then <laughs> Kelly actually, DeForest Kelly actually looks down the barrel of the lens at one point. And I'm not sure. I guess the production was just like, we got it. Let's move on. We've got what we want. Just keep going. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> if they were uh, caught in budget problems, they might not have been able to do more. Yeah. It did have one interesting shot where, again, in the scene with the tape, where the last scene, the camera pans down to the uh, computer that had played the tape, which I thought, Sort of like having acknowledging there was a third person there, sort of. I see, I see. Uh, the only thing that you can say about the revised version is, of course, they could really beef up the Tholian web and some of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But they couldn't do very much about Kirk's be ghost figure, Kirk. Yeah. Because the same <laughs> photography. So that's the one part that looks kind of weird. It does. Because it kind of looks like an old old TV show. It's kind of faded or whatever. Right. And they, um, yeah. they, may, I mean, they had already spent a lot of money on that, and they were under uh, time pressure as well because when they were making these suits, uh, the Kirk suit was like the first one that was finished, so they had to kind of shoot his stuff when they could and then just pick up the rest when they had finished uh, the rest of these space suits. So you've got a producer who is under the gun and is ready to, you know, he's got a hot firing hand. You've got a DP who is possibly inexperienced at his job and is taking longer to do it than usual. And then, as I mentioned, um, Al Singer, uh, the uh, the new writer, uh, he's inexperienced. Uh, there's a possibly uh, apocryphal story that Fontana, DC Fontana, tells that Singer uh, wandered onto the set one day and he asked the set guy, uh, what's the transporter thing do again? And at that point, people were like, all right, we're screwed. Like, this is, we're on our way out here. You've oh, got, well. <laughs> you've got a production that is definitely in trouble, but one that uh, I think still delivered more than a few great episodes uh, in this third season. Well, and I think uh, this one and the one with the uh, Enterprise incident, is that from the third season? Yes. That Those is, are probably the two standouts, I would say. I really enjoyed that episode, um, even though... DC Fontana had a big falling out with uh, the production team over the script. Um, she had a couple things in there that were rewritten by Singer that she felt was just not in the character of Spock. And so there was trouble there. I also like uh, the specter of the gun, I think is a classic episode. Um, yes. I actually think the empath one, which is it's very 60, but, and it has no background. It's like Batman. Uh, by the third season of Batman, they <laughs> yeah. never had backgrounds yeah, either. Right. <laughs> it was always in big black boxes. Yeah, uh, Spectre of the Guns like that too. But uh, but the actress, who's a soap opera actress who played the empath, is actually good. Yeah, oh yeah, and is uh, memorable. Uh, so you know, there are a couple good. Some of them are are good at the end. There's some, you know, like the one with Scotty's girlfriend, Lights of Something. 
Yeah, of Zatar, yeah. I mean, that just doesn't... I, I can't remember a thing about it. And I've seen it probably, you know, just 10 times. Yeah. I just don't remember it. You know, some, I'll give the, I'll give the hippie one and the uh, Spock's brain. I remember them. Sure. Let this be your last <laughs> battleground. I remember it. Sure. Frank Gorshin. You know, yeah. It, yeah. But I, you know, some of them just, just were not interesting. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally. And there's a lot of, uh, well, I think that you had we talked to before about how a lot of the, um, you know, the effect of not having the places to go, the budgets, the exteriors, and so on and so forth, cause them to focus on character issues. And so we get a lot of uh, good character development, uh, sort of conversations and discussions between the characters. We also get a lot of story elements that would be mined for years beyond this. Savage Curtain introduces uh, Kalish, um, you know, the character of Surak. We've got Kang in Day of the Dove, who, of course, would, um, you know, come back in DS9. Yeah, and Savage Curtain is a good episode, I think. I think there are... See, I I don't think the third season is terrible. You know, there's some terrible episodes in the first one season. You know, so... um, I'm more forgiving of that. I, I understand some of the budget problems. and, and uh, But on the other hand, isn't the one with Miramani, isn't that in the third season? That's right. They obviously Paradise went Indian. on location for that. Yeah, I think they saved up all their uh, their outdoor money for that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's not the greatest episode, but it, it's kind of nice to see the uh, location shooting, for example. That's another one um, where Kirk gets whisked away off the Enterprise, and then you've got Spock having to make these really tough decisions, and McCoy's like... What are you doing? You're doing the wrong thing. Right. Except that we still have so much emphasis on Kirk. It's almost uh, a total Kirk episode. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's why Tholian and Webb stands out, because it's not. Yeah. Well, let's. we're here to, to praise it and not bury it. Um, we can definitely talk about what we um, enjoy about the Tholian Web. And I agree. Uh, there are, you know, there, again, there's goofy elements. Um, it's a 60s sci-fi show. But I agree that the, the drama is, is pretty tense. And also, there are just visually arresting kind of things. As you mentioned, the Tholian Web doesn't make a lot of sense. But it, there's, we've got two ticking clocks in this episode because we've got... Kirk presumably dying of oxygen deprivation and then you've also got we've got to figure this out before they close this web because we don't know what's going to happen when this thing closes the best episode a lot of the better episodes of Star Trek do have that clicking uh, ticking time clock going by that they have to do something by so much uh, I like those kind of things it, uh, it works in television you know because well, you know, there's only an hour to solve the whole thing. You know, right. it's <laughs> yeah. a little bit shorter than a movie. Yeah. Uh, when it doesn't work, let's say 24, where they get through LA traffic in like 10 minutes. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> that. It's, it, you know, it feels more ridiculous. But uh, here, here it, it doesn't. It really feels like there's some tension. Uh, because they have the space madness, it does explain McCoy's often erratic behavior. <laughs> And because he apologizes twice, it's, he acknowledges that he's acting out of character. Yeah, a bit. and he and I like the fact that they don't totally hit the gas on him going nuts uh, like the other characters. We just see that wow, he's really riding Spock pretty hard, and there is an ambiguity whether it is his real emotion or it's a space madness or it's a, a mixture of both. Um, as far as his emotions go, there is one scene that is probably my favorite like scene of the episode where he and Chapel are trying to derive the cure. And then we see that the, his orderly is starting to kind of go a little, little wiggy. 
and he attacks yeah. him and he's trying to kill him and they're wrestling around and he's like ah, ah and the entire time McCoy's face is just completely like stone cold like he is he's everybody yeah. thinks of McCoy as being this really emotional guy but like when his life is in danger and he, you know he's just like cold as ice yeah because uh chapel hesitates Yes, and then all of a sudden she very smoothly gets the uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, the needle or whatever to knock the guy out. But I mean, she sort of hesitates like a like a woman from a '40s movie. Yeah, that she gets it done. Geared. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, frankly, that's an odd uh, thing because the uh, orderly. I always interpret that he looks at Chapel with lust. Oh, I see. Okay, and so it's I. Uh, uh, I wonder if that's not he's attacking McCoy because McCoy's standing between him and, and his babe. That's a possibility. But sure. it's like a, it's an odd. He he just kind of looks like he's lusting after her, which is <laughs> out of out of. But why is he so violent? But you know, right? Uh, that's that's my take on it. I could see that. Uh, and as yeah. soon as she hits him with the uh, sedative or whatever it is, uh, he hits the ground, and McCoy's right back to business. He's like, "Okay, let's run some tests on him." It's just like we see <laughs> we see McCoy the professional. Yes, and then we uh, have these guys crazy screaming in the sick bay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, and you kind of wonder at some point, well, do they put them in the brig after a while <laughs> because there's so many of them? But they never really go into the numbers. Yeah. We do. Uh, poor Uhura, she actually uh, gets to see uh, Captain Kirk, and then of course nobody believes her. And it's it's plausible, I think, for a professional like McCoy, who has already had a couple of these cases, to just assume that she's being affected. Uh, but she's like, no, no, I really saw him, and they're like, okay, all right, sweetie, that, that's fine. Why don't you just lie down? It's interesting, though. Part of something's a little interesting, right? She. Uh how her room is set up, and then she puts on a uh, necklace, which looks very African. Right. Um, I think, actually, those touches are kind of nice. And she also has a, a, an interesting smooth hairstyle at this one. You know, yeah, she it's has dressed down. different hairstyles, and this is one of the more acceptable. <laughs> you know, it doesn't look like the 60s as much. Well, it looks like the 60s, but it doesn't look like a, a science fiction 60s. Yeah, she would change a little bit throughout the series, but yeah, this is sort of her uh, casual or her look. Uh, Scotty also, James Doohan, was told in the third season by the production that he had to do that the slick back look, uh, ah. which he sports for many of the episodes in the third season, but not in this one in particular. Uh, did you have a like a favorite moment that you would pick out from this? We've talked about a lot of good moments, but is there something that really stands out for you? Probably the tape scene. Yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah, that kind of explains a little bit of um, how the three of them connect to each other in some ways. And so I kind of like that the best. And it's, um, as a guy who used to act, it's just interesting to see the two actors uh, watching a tape and their different reactions. I actually find that quite interesting. Yeah. So, and... Uh, Oh, it shows the le- kind of the leadership of Kirk too a little bit too, and I I, I like that why Kirk is the the captain. Yeah, they didn't know at this point that there would be feature films going forward, so it's it's encouraging uh, to know, and I think it's a good mark on them at this point that they were still able to f- to mine um, conflict, interesting conflict out of the relationship between um, all these characters. You'd think by the third season we'd be kind of sick of. McCoy sniping at Spock and then him sniping back and yet they would continue that for another 25, 30 years. Well, yeah. And uh, 
I saw the Star Trek two in the movie theater uh, a couple months ago, and there still is a little bit of that. Uh, McCoy was still doing some of that stuff, and I yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll find you in some ways you think well he grow out of it, but no, 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 he's <laughs> he's <laughs> still fresh, still does it, and it's quite entertaining because at that point he's still pretty healthy looking and all that, and so. Right. He's got a lot of uh, energy for it, you know, <laughs> where by Star Trek six, he looks like he's pretty worn out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was getting down there. I really enjoy uh, Spock's dilemma and also um, also Elena Nimoy's performance in this episode. Um, I am of the mind that you set up a character, we find out their strengths and what we like about them. And then you make uh, it's OK to make choices that don't necessarily make any sense. Um, a lot of people complain about characters acting out of character, but I think if you take a, a, a choice uh, that a character makes, then we can dig into that. And when no, you look I, at- I think that, yeah, with Spock, he really, it shows the human side. Yeah, that right. He actually has hope, and his logic gives him a scenario where that hope could get paid off with the captain instead of just dismissing it. I mean, it's ultimately illogical what he does, but maybe it's also his human side that he's able to justify to himself that there is a logical path uh, and not the fact that he just doesn't want to lose his friend. Yeah, but, you know, um, it's an interesting kind of thought because, you know, logic, you can logically get to that point uh, where he came up with a solution that actually works. And I think that's that's good. That's it shows a good use of his character that he wasn't just rigid, right? Yes, and I think that's what happens too much is they they kind of it happens in the comics too that sometimes they make Spock a little too rigid because it's easier that he's a stereotype that he doesn't have emotions and stuff, but I don't think Leonard Nimoy ever played it that way. No, and he's so he I mean he's such a great actor and he knows the character so well that he can even deliver um, a degree of rigidity, but I. Maybe it's my imagination, but I feel like I can see Spock questioning himself. I think the ca- the uh, casual yeah. viewer wouldn't get it, but you know that there is a little bit of doubt there in what he's doing. And there are, and I think McCoy brings it up to him. Yeah, and you can see <laughs> yeah. it in his face that it's uh, that he is actually affected by what McCoy said. He's not just this rigid guy who's not even hearing things; he's hearing McCoy. And he knows that there's uh, problems. McCoy has a de- uh, has a devastating line in, uh, in the episode where they're talking about people seeing Kirk and they're trying to figure out if it's real. And Spock talks about how, well, sometimes people see what they want to see. And McCoy's like, oh, do you think they're seeing him because they've lost confidence in you? And it's like, oh, geez. oh yeah. Ouch. Uh, 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 hey, uh, that bitch can scratch. <laughs> <laughs> and know, that's, kind of I think that's the scene where he spins uh, uh, him around in the chair, too. <laughs> It's like, yeah, <laughs> which is a very aggressive thing. You know, when I was young, I wasn't sure that chair really spun around. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just going to, you know, solid. Yeah, yeah, I know it moves, but, you know, you, you don't know how fast it can move and stuff right. like that. <laughs> yeah, it's on casters. Um, there, I love the, uh, I mean, it's we shouldn't really laugh at alcoholism, but we always get the fun beats out of Scotty going, oh, can you, is this a good mixer? I'll let you know. Well, yeah, yeah, and that's uh, the funniest <laughs> scene in this. And, you know, even the most serious ones, when they work, they actually use a little bit of comedy, too. So right. that just shows the uh, strength of a good writing, uh, I think. And uh, he delivers this. Scotty comes off very well in this episode. Yeah, yeah, he really even does. Even though he has a very small role, uh, it's not his biggest role, but he comes off quite well. I think Yuhura comes off well. 
Yes, yes. Um, only only, uh, only Chekhov. <laughs> yeah. Mighty screams and kind of overdoing it a little bit. <laughs> he's, um, he's very young, yes. Yes, yeah. yeah, he's a young actor. <laughs> he must have ripped out his throat when he did that. <laughs> but uh, there's just, uh, he does that in several of the other episodes, and it's kind of less effective the more he does it. Yeah, well, we had to have him in there for the girls. Uh, Davy Jones, so popular uh, at that time. Yeah, probably. <laughs> well, you know, there was something about uh, him being a young guy in there and, and being affected so easily. Maybe maybe that said something, too. I also like the. I mean, it probably saved them a little money in the long run, but I like the fact that a lot of the inexperienced um, plot lines or sort of character reactions that you'd put on a red shirt who was destined to die in that episode uh, could just be given to, to Chekhov. So Chekhov would... <laughs> have a reaction that, uh, you know, normally a, a, a day player would have. Yeah, and you would think, uh, I'll tell you, you're Hura. You don't really see any women affected by the space madness. And right. your Hura isn't. You're right. And so I, uh, I wonder if they didn't know what to do, how crazy to make a woman look. Yeah, they had explored that too, I think, in The Naked Time, where Chapel is being affected by the virus. And, of course, she's mooning over Spock. So I'm glad we didn't get a right. surprise of that. Well, and, and they, they easily could have been what they had gone for, but it's like um, it seems like they're still a little bit reserved about how far they could go with a, a woman, yeah, uh, you know, going crazy or whatever. Well, I, I think that it's great that they, you know, as you as you just mentioned, that they sort of. Um, check themselves. I think that it was, they could have easily had like, oh, oh boy, her going crazy. She's a woman. Um, and they right. kind of, they underwrote it, um, possibly being aware that they didn't want it to necessarily come off like that. But then again, like I said, she's an officer on the bridge. She comes up and tells the doctor she's seen the captain and they go, yeah, why don't you just lie down? And then later on when she's proven right, they're like, oh, you, you're free to go. <laughs> but she's good at it uh, because she really looks so concerned right and, and, she, and she's yeah in a quiet core way you know as opposed to being exactly oh screaming like Chekhov <laughs> right well yeah I mean, it's, <laughs> it's 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 much more effective yeah um in some ways i wish Chekhov, uh, the actor and all they could have sometimes let him underdo it <laughs> <laughs> just tell him in to... the movies sometimes they did and he's more effective in a lot of the movies oh yeah for sure yeah I also uh, think that, you uh, know, but maybe it's because he's so young. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Michelle Nichols does a great job underplaying or not underplaying it, but playing also the fact that, you know, she's worried that she might be going crazy and she, that she might end up like the screaming guy in the corner. And um, we see her sort of dreading that. But again, you know, being a professional, not really losing control. So, again, I think uh, for the most of them, they had good acting parts. Uh, and that's part of what I what I liked. They really just. uh they explored characters. Almost all of them got to do a little bit of something. Sulu doesn't get to do too much, but most of them got to do something. And uh, I find it a very effective episode, especially considering it's a bottle show and all that. I agree. I think that it's it's deservedly well remembered. Um, it is exciting. It adds great uh, elements to the series uh, and the franchise as a whole. And, you know, I mean, they're not all bad in the third season for sure. No, no, no. I think that's a generalization you can't uh, make very often. Yeah. You know, any long-running show, too, sometimes there's off things in the later seasons. And so, again, we the next generation, are there that many good episodes in the first two years? <laughs> Not really. But by the third season, it really kind of catches fire. And, and, 
And for the most part, most of the rest of it is a really good run. I'd agree. But there are a lot of weird episodes in that first season. And the second season had uh, a writer's strike, which kind of... That hurt them, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think that a uh, live-action fourth season might have looked like? Well, uh, assuming it would have the same budget, I I assume it'd be somewhat (laughs) like the, the third season. Probably. Probably a, a mixed bag of stuff. I um, I wouldn't be surprised if they would go revisit storylines. Sure. Because at least the start of it has been done, the first part of thinking, and the costumes are already made. Right, exactly. And just getting actors back, you know, the same Klingon or something like that. Let's see what Roger Carmel's up to. Yes, yeah, that's a good example because, uh, you know, that uh, he was funny. I wouldn't be shocked if he had come back again or... The Tribbles might come back, you know, with a follow-up, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Which would have been very fun for fans, I think. Sure. Um, that would be the more idealistic look of it. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's good that we <laughs> were scared who, who that, <laughs> maybe, maybe they would have put Flip Wilson on as a, a captain, too. <laughs> right. So who knows? Huh? <laughs> they might have done other weird things. <laughs> maybe they all dance like laughing every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. That hippie thing might have been Goldie Hawn shows up. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it could have been something like that. But it really depends. There's so many elements. You know, uh, it's possible Freiburger would have been burnt out. Yeah, possibly. It's possible that they saw, maybe somebody said, you know, these aren't as good. Let's get Roddenberry back. We can make up to them. Sure. You know, so there's a lot of different ways it could have gone. Maybe D.C. Fontana would have taken over. We would have had a woman uh, running the show. That oh, might that have been nice. Have been, yeah, that would have been great. Uh, so, you know, it's hard, to, it's, it's hard to say, you know. I don't know if they had, were there even any intentions of ever going to a fourth season? Well, you know, there we were a couple scripts written, I think. Yeah, and I think a lot of those got folded into on the animated show later on. Yeah, but I think NBC I was think one was about McCoy's daughter, right? Yeah, yeah. I think by the time it was over, I've drawn that. I've drawn his daughter. Oh, for okay, for the sure, sure. And uh, I think the DC Fontana wrote a miniseries I drew. Okay, and I think uh, she had her graduating from medical school. Right. Right. And my little extra joke was the bartender at the little gathering was the bartender from Tribbles. Oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that was my little joke. <laughs> Still getting some work. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so as we wrap up here, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Oh, uh, Kirk is number one. Uh, I think uh, because he's the first. Right. Uh, he's my favorite actor doing it. Um, and he, you know, he was a good leader with a good sense of humor. I think Janeway is number two, actually, in my mind, because I think she's a, uh, I think some of the maternal instinct that comes out occasionally, if she's a good scientist, she made good decisions. She made tough decisions. Uh, she came too. off well on the uh, bridge. You know, she looked like somebody c- could command. I think Picard is after that because, of course, uh, he's so beloved <laughs> and right. a great actor. Right. Uh, after that, you got to go Cisco, I think. Archer is the only one that I think I have, I have trouble with, and it's, it's because I believe the writing was so inconsistent that yeah. he started every season with a new take on the character, and I'm assuming that's from the writers or producers. Yeah, yeah. So there are times where he was the kind of a tough guy, and there are times where he's kind of the genial guy. The actor kind of works better as a genial guy, so that's probably what 
they should have done. They should have said, well, this is our actor. Right. It's, Let's make sure. right around him. It's got back He's a very good actor. And, uh, yeah. and when he's more genial, and I think by the end, they kind of were writing him like that. Yeah, there's a whole, it's kind of like you said, it's inconsistent, but there's also a kind of whole, I know humanity has to prove themselves, but they're kind of just like, F you so many times to a lot of the elements of the universe. Like, we don't need the Vulcans help for this, and we're Americans. I mean, uh, we're Earthlings, and we're going to get this done. Right. There's a little of that. There's some things that just don't make sense. You know, like they have a lot of aliens there, so why are they they so weird about aliens in the first season of Star Trek? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and to be honest, the uh, woman who plays uh, the uh, first, second in command or whatever, uh, she is a very stiff actress. She's like a model, not an actress, and she does not really improve. You know, one of those things is sometimes you you cast nice looking people, but they grow. They they learn how to act. Sure. You know, they get on TV shows. They might come from a soap opera or, or modeling or something like that, but they learn how to act. You know, Sybil Shepherd got better when she was on Moonlighting. You know. Uh, a lot of times, that's what happens. She is one uh, who never really improved very much, and it's always a drag on the show when the best actors trip. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention uh, Janeway and her presence, and I think that all of that is down to Kate Mulgrew. Um, I don't know if you were familiar with the with the fact that they had originally cast a different actress as Janeway. Yeah, uh, yeah, a French actress was it? Yeah, Genevieve Bujold. And if you look at, which is, you know, I, I like the idea that it's not another like American white lady, but you can look at, uh, they shot almost the entire pilot, or I think maybe the whole pilot, and you can see on YouTube comparisons of her performance versus Janeway. Oh, really? That'd be interesting. You, for, so it's a two-hour pilot? Uh, you, I don't think you can watch the whole thing, but you can watch select scenes um, that are blocked exactly the same. So they knew exactly what they wanted, and she wasn't it. And she doesn't do a bad job, but when you see her up against Janeway, you go, oh, no, this that lady's a captain. Like, she's she is a Starfleet captain. Yeah, I always got the idea that she was a film actress, and she didn't like the rigorous schedule of a television show. There's so many lines, especially Janeway would have had to memorize. Yeah, it's a different thing. Um and uh, but I also feel that acting is different on a movie than a TV show. Yeah, certainly. TV shows that you can almost get away more with it being a theatrical actor, like Shatner, you know, or or Stewart. Where you, and uh, I think the Mulgrew probably too, where you could do a little bit bigger acting and stuff like that, and that could work on TV movies. Man, you you. Keanu Reeves wouldn't work on TV. You can work in a movie, though. <laughs> sure. Because you don't have to do a huge amount because the camera catches everything. Right. <laughs> and so if a director is clever, he can cast a person who really can't act that well and make it effective. Yeah, you, you can know? kind of shoot around it, sure. Yeah, or make them very stoic, like statues or something like that. <laughs> like, uh, like how Zack Snyder does a lot with his characters on movies. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you will receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship would you work in? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> History, <laughs> maybe? Interesting. The historians. Sure. And I could hook up with uh, Khan's girlfriend. I don't know. Oh, I'm not right. quite sure how that all works out. Yeah. But it'd be nice to have somebody who, who knew something had 
time that had gone by and could appreciate it. Sure. I always like uh, when they do um, Tom Paris on Voyager had an affection for the 20th century and their yes, trappings. Yeah, I like those things. Yeah, so you know, it's like, no, this is called Dr. Pepper. Everybody drank it back then. <laughs> you get scenes like that. <laughs> Well, probably Riker did too. I think uh, the what is it, the Hill, the detective thing. That, oh, sure, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Picard right. did. Yeah, uh, I will say that you know of all the tropes on Star Trek, that holodeck is the one that's too seductive for writers. Sure, because you write anything. Yeah, and that makes it too easy. <laughs> right, and where uh, like Deep Space Nine, for the most part used it in a fun way. You know, they went to casinos or played baseball or whatever. They had a spy story, if I remember, James Bond one. All those were quite fun. Sometimes <laughs> the other shows, I think Voyager is one of them, they would just go too far with that stuff. Right, yeah, when they're using like, it. You know, if you're desperate in space, why are you using energy on holograms? <laughs> yeah, you have a million shuttlecraft to build. Yeah, right. Yes, don't you have other things to do? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Anson Purcell, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Well, I am on Facebook. I am also on Twitter, both under my just my full name. Sure. Otherwise, <laughs> you can see me at conventions occasionally and things like that. Any uh, conventions coming up for you in the near future? Yeah, I think I'm going to be in Denver in about uh, April 20th and 22nd. I think I'm going to do a con then. I, I have a con in Minnesota uh, for the uh, spring con, the two-day show at the Grandstand in May. I think I'm also going to be in Sioux Falls at the end of May. Oh, great. For a weekend. And okay. then I, uh, uh, one of the things I'll be Pushing is I'm doing Stargate Atlantis, a miniseries, and I just handed in my first few pages. All right. So uh, the first issue should come out around late January, then probably every other month from that point. So uh, that's something people can look forward yeah, to. Yeah, people should and look course, out for that. Uh, that's a very good series that had a lot of... Uh, a lot of Star Trek-type elements in it, so I think Star Trek fans would probably like it. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much. We are signing off to the next mission, hailing frequencies closed. So